welcome to the Proper Mental Podcast. Normalising open and honest conversations about mental health by having open and honest conversations about mental health. Welcome to episode 96 of the Proper Mental Podcast and this week I'm joined by Ian Roulier and Leonie Schneider from Saipan. And Saipan is the Psychedelic Participant Advocacy Network and it's a non-profit organisation created to connect and empower participants of psychedelic trials and anyone who has received psychedelic therapy. And it's really cool how this episode came about. You may remember about 20 or so episodes back I spoke to Dr. Roz Watts, and she is a therapist who worked on some of the early psilocybin for depression clinical studies. And that was a really good episode. It was fascinating. We talked all about the trials and stuff like that. It was actually a very well-received episode. So if you haven't heard it yet, go and check it out because a lot of people loved that one. After we finished recording, me and Roz just kind of stayed on and had a chat. We got on really well. She was so lovely. And we just chatting a bit about my own experiences with mental health and where my interest in psychedelics comes from and stuff like that. And she said to me, there's someone that I know that I think it would be really worth you connecting with. So she introduced me by email to Ian. And one thing that I'm a big fan of, and I talk about it a bit on this episode, is that sometimes people or conversations are put in your path for a reason. It's like when someone recommends you a book just when you need to read that particular book. I think podcast conversations work like that as well. So the fact that Roz thought it was a conversation that needed to happen kind of made me feel like it was a conversation that needed to happen. And it took us a bit of sorting out because there's three of us on the call and we're all juggling different dates and different diaries, but we made it happen. And uh, yeah, it's wonderful. I enjoyed it so much. I'm so glad that we were able to... uh, able to make it happen. So like I said, I'm joined by Ian and Leone. And Ian has suffered from depression and anxiety for most of his adult life. And psilocybin has proven to be the most effective treatment for his mental health. And to date, he has taken part in two psychedelic trials. Leone was first diagnosed with depression in 1996 and hadn't found any long-term relief in almost continuous antidepressant medication or from conventional talking therapies in over 20 years. And in November 2019, Leone was a participant in the second psilocybin for depression clinical trial at Imperial College. And it's really important for people that have had psychedelic experiences, particularly in this setting, to connect with each other afterwards. It's such a unique experience. It's such a personal experience. And it's just really important for people to be able to get together and actually talk about it, actually process some of the learnings by speaking to other people who have gone through what they've gone through. And with that in mind, Ian and Leone started Saipan. And the aim really is to ensure that everyone gains the maximum potential benefit from the treatment they are being given and to give a collective voice to all the participants and help improve participant safety and well-being. We chat all about that in this episode. Both Ian and Leone tell me about their mental health experiences and the lack of effective treatment that led them to getting involved in psychedelic trials. And we talk about the process of signing up, the trial itself, how it works, how it felt, and what happened afterwards. And we also talk about the work that they're doing with Saipan and why it's so important to contribute towards a responsible, ethical, and most importantly, a safe psychedelic sector. 
And it was just awesome to chat to them both. They have such an incredible insight, not just on the, the trials and not just on psilocybin as a treatment option, but just like the whole aspect of mental health. You know, they've spent so long dealing with their own stuff. They've spent so long talking to other people about their stuff. They've spent so long just being involved in the conversation and maybe from a slightly different perspective from some of the other people you've heard on this podcast. So there's a lot here. You'll be able to tell by how excited I get that I got a lot from it. And that whole thing about relatability that I keep banging on about, there's so many elements um, in Ian's story in particular that really ring true with my own experience of mental ill health. And um, I can really see why Roz wanted to put us together. So go and listen to the Roz Watts episode. Then check back in and listen to this episode. It's the perfect follow-up. After that, go and check out everything that Saipan are doing. You can go to their website, saipanglobal.org, on all social media platforms, they're at Saipan Global. There's quite a bit of stuff on YouTube as well of different uh, panels and different talks that both Ian and Leonie have done. So it's well worth going down that rabbit hole if you're interested. As ever, you can follow me on all social media platforms at Proper Mental Podcast. Do me a solid, leave a review. You can review this episode. You can review Roz's episode. You can review any episode you choose to listen to. Just review one of them, please. It's very much appreciated. And that is probably enough from me. And this is episode 96 of the Proper Mental Podcast with Ian and Leonie from Cyber. Thank you very much for listening. Enjoy! Leonie Schneider. I got your name wrong there, mate. I'll try that again. Here we are with another episode of the Proper Mental Podcast. And I'm joined today by Ian Rulier and Leonie Schneider. How are you doing, guys? Yeah, doing well. Great to all of you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah. Oh, thanks for joining me. I really appreciate it. I've been really looking forward to this because um after I spoke to Ros Watts a few episodes ago, and it was her suggestion that I kind of connect with you guys. And I think it's really um I don't know, sometimes the universe kind of gives you like a little little nudge, right? And if I always think if someone says, oh, maybe you should chat to this person, then it's always worth pursuing because there's just some sort of reason for that. So I've been really looking forward to uh, really looking forward to this conversation. But um, I suppose the best place to start um, is how do you guys know each other? So, yes, we, we are both um, ex-clinical trial participants. So I took part in the Imperial college pilot study looking at the effects of psilocybin on depression back in 2015 and Leonie took part in the phase two stage of that trial in 2019. Um, We know each other via Roz so in early 2020 was it actually after the pandemic had kicked in wasn't it that the connectedness program began so um, yeah Roz through her work as you've discussed with her you know understood the importance of uh, connectedness connectedness to ourselves others nature etc and uh, during her time at the synthesis institute she created the connectedness program and um, both Leonie and I were lucky enough to be part of that so it was completely made up of uh, clinical trial participants from the imperial trials and uh, yeah via that uh, we got to know each other over many, many Zoom calls, doing workshops together and sharing circles. And as much as you may think that here we are now on Zoom, but you know, as much as you may think that 
Zoom calls aren't a great way to connect because there isn't that sort of in-person contact. Um, it really helped us get through the pandemic. You know, it was perfectly timed, really. So that's how we got to know each other. And then we, we only met each other in person for the first time just under a year ago um, on, a, on a nature retreat that was also run via the Connectedness Programme uh, via Synthesis. So, yeah, here we are. Here we are. Yeah, it's a funny yeah. thing, Zoom, isn't it? Because I think, like, probably because of the pandemic, maybe we got a bit burnt out on it, all of us. But then you forget there's certain aspects of it that are really good. And I think sometimes talking to people when they're in the comfort of their own house can really like lead something to when people feel much more relaxed when they're in their own environment. You know, I certainly am much better talking on zoom than I am in person. That's for right. sure. You know? So um, yeah, there is a lot of um, advantages to it as well, isn't there for, uh, for that sort of stuff. Yeah. You mentioned that the, the trials there. Um, I actually used to work in, in clinical trials in a cancer hospital. So I kind of like, I'm familiar with the, with the language, you know, with the, with the pathway. And I always think that it's something that maybe is not highlighted enough, how to go on a, a clinical trial of any sort, how brave it is, because it's so important. It's so important for, for, for science and for pushing things forward and for figuring all this stuff out. Um, but it is, it's a brave thing and it's a scary thing. And I often with the people that, you know, that we used to work with in a hospital, I always used to think that, and I'm probably generalizing here a little bit, but for someone to sign up for a trial, it's normally because they're kind of out of options. You know, it's, it's, it does tend to be like an end of the road thing. And, um, so like Leone, was that your experience when you came to sign up for the trial? Was that kind of, were you feeling like you tried a lot of things and maybe there wasn't much left to try? Exactly, exactly, Tom. Spot on there. I think um, in order to qualify for the trial, there was an element of having to have um, treatment-resistant depression. So that means you've gone through a number of treatments before and you had evidence that and work with the, the psychiatrists to explore what options you had gone through. So it's having tried a number of antidepressants. It's having tried a number of different talking therapy modalities and then reaching the point with your GP usually um, and had this experience where the GP is like, I'm out of options, what else do you want me to do for you? So then you think, well, you know, you come across, stumble across maybe in, in my case, I went to a talk, uh, Robin Carhart Harris was doing in London and he was uh, describing actually the findings of the first stage of the, the Imperial trial. And I thought, okay, well, this is a different option. This is something to do. What I would say, Tom, though, um, which is a bit different maybe to some of the other trials is um, psilocybin as a treatment has been around for eons. It has been indigenously used. So. You know, I have full respect for people that go through the clinical trial process, but on, on some level, I, I felt a little bit reassured that this wasn't completely a new substance. There was some precedent to it and that it was held safely held within a scientific context. And should I have any medical need, there'd be a team that felt really reassuring and allowed me to take that step into a, a heroic dose of a psychedelic treatment. So, you know, um, yeah, but, but even then there's a different, there was a different challenge with these trials. While it has been a known substance, um, there's a lot of stigma around it. So we found that a lot of participants take, taking the brave step to come on these trials often didn't have the support uh, even of their, their closest family at times. And it was done sort of as an aside or, and their friends. So coming in quite isolated because of their depression and then leaving the trial just as isolated because they don't know where to go with this, this experience. There's no sort of cultural container or community, which again is part of the reason Ian and I are doing SIPAD because we want to connect participants to each other because it is a very unique path to have walked with a very unique substance at a very unique point in history. And uh, yeah, doing it with others and walking each other home as Ram Das would say, is exactly yeah. 
trying to do. Yeah, definitely. I suppose that makes so much sense. I mean, firstly, what you mentioned there about like the the history, you know, mm-hmm. behind behind the medicine, and um, yeah, I suppose it's it's more comforting in a way that something is essentially growing out of the ground rather than just being invented in a, in a, in a laboratory, right? Yeah. Just being put together. Yeah. I've never really thought of it from that perspective. That's really, really interesting. And the compound on the, on the treatment day on dosing day was uh, synthesized uh, in the laboratory. So it isn't, you're not given a, a mushroom in a bowl, but yeah. it's the idea that it's the same synthetic, the same compound and, and uh, no one has actually died from it. <laughs> yeah yeah so it's like kind of like uh you're using nature's recipe right but um maybe uh, modern ingredients maybe is a way to to look at it yeah and was that the same for you ian that, did that bring you to the trial did you know much about psilocybin beforehand um is that something that had been on your radar at all um so my approach to life is to be completely open so i'll i'll, I'll continue that during during this conversation so i'd actually had some experience of taking LSD when I was way too young probably sort of in my late teens well mid-teens and then into my early 20s irregularly I I took it and the last time I took that I had an awful awful experience uh, where I yeah yeah it was a, a terrible time where I was really sort of resisting and really kind of just wanted it to be over really wanted it to be over worried that I wouldn't come back to normal, worried that it would damage me forever. And I, you know, luckily I had a very good friend who forced me to go out the day afterwards to think we went to McDonald's, which is not good for a lot of people's mental health. But, you know, that was just what I needed to be made to go out and to re-engage with the outside world because I was in very scared and very, yeah, um, yeah, I just didn't feel safe in the world after that, you know. So, yeah, so my my background and my approach uh, very much was maybe the other way. So I didn't go into this um, psychedelic naive, as they call it. I'd actually had, there was some baggage there. There was some bad, there was a bad experience, after which I'd vowed I'm never touching psychedelics ever again. But that was that's the thing with depression, you know. As Leonie said, I followed a similar path where you try so many different therapies and medications and nothing really seems to make a lasting difference at all. And the more of those you have, the more desperate you get, the more broken you feel. And uh, yeah, Leonie referred to this, my doctor saying, I don't know what else you expect me to be able to do. It's probably the worst thing somebody in that position can possibly hear from their GP. Um, But thankfully, I came across a video of Robin Carr Harris giving a lecture and um, said that they were looking to do a pilot study looking at the effect of psilocybin on depression. Now, you'd think with my background, my baggage, my experience, why would I put myself forward for that? I tried everything, you know, after the GP had said that I was online looking. That's how I came across that lecture with uh, Robin and yeah there, there were no no options left it felt like this was this was the only thing that might be able to help me so um, yeah it took a lot for me to take that leap and when you've taken the capsules you know everyone's made you as comfortable as possible but it is that roller coaster click 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 you know as you're going up before you're then sort of released and you don't have much choice after that moment you know uh you can resist 
to an extent, but if you do that, the experience is very different and uh, you're encouraged to let go, basically. In and through was the very key phrase for me to allow anything that came up to come up. But I was able to speak to the team. Uh, the team that I had were amazing. And I spoke to them about my previous experiences and how I'd had that, that bad trip effectively. Um, many people say there's no such thing as a bad trip, just a challenging experience. And you can still kind of integrate what you learn during that into your life, etc. But I was, you know, that bad experience wasn't with a team of uh, highly trained mental health experts. So I think that made a big difference. But um I was able to voice my concerns to them. They put my mind at ease as much as they possibly could, you know, and really, really helped me. And when things did get sticky and did get scary, uh, they really helped me through those moments, you know. Yeah, I suppose that's where um, that's where that stigma, Leonie, that you were mentioning before, that's where it comes from, right? Because there's yeah. a difference as, um, as using this stuff as like a medicine to, to help you along a path and using it recreationally, which is probably how well essentially is how most people come to find it right or maybe think of it in the first place and that builds a lot of stigma around it I'd imagine absolutely and and comes down to the importance of set and setting and sort of intention and using the medicine intentionally because I always think you'd never find a a depressed hippie in a music festival field if uh, if all you needed to do was take a substance right um it is about how you take it and in what context and as Ian mentioned having the right kind of support to take to take the nuggets and the learnings and the, the pearls out of that experience. And then the important part for me really, and it's the thing that's uh, been more important than the trial is the process of integration afterwards. Um, because I, I, like Ian, I wasn't psychedelic naive, um, but the, the thing that's really shifted the depression for me was having the tools and the support to then take those insights and then weave them into sort of everyday experience and practice. And that changes the quality of your life and your and your relationship to the depression, really. Yeah, yeah, that's um. I mean, the, the I've watched the um. I've watched all the. Uh, it's not something I've experienced myself. I've watched all the documentaries. You know, I've seen all the stuff on on Netflix and and all that. And it it for me, I found it a really difficult watch watching people go through the experience because it is it's incredibly um, challenging. You know, and um, Ian, that lovely metaphor used about going up on the on the roller coaster. I mean, that must be the strangest feeling of like, all right, I'm in this now. And so much about when we're any going through any sort of like mental uh, disturbance, you know, we can get so stuck. But also within that place of being stuck, there's a certain amount of safety. Right. So it's like I, I know what I'm going through isn't right. I know what I'm going through is awful. But at least I'm a, I know my awful, <laughs> you know, like at least yeah. it's my awful. And to make a decision to step out of that when you don't know what's on the other side, you know, you can have all the people in the world, can't you say, no, this is going to be a positive thing. But there's one thing hearing it, there's one thing thinking I'd like to do that. And then there's another thing buckling in on that roller coaster, right? Yeah, there's, there's a, there's a, yeah, there is a strange comfort within the discomfort. You know, you know, you may be, you may be in your tiny prison cell, but you know, every square inch of it, you know, the territory so taking a substance that really i mean i during the imperial trial uh there was a 10 milligram dose and then a week later a 25 milligram dose the 10 milligram dose i was able to resist and push back against you know and retain that that control in some ways you know 
didn't let go there if that had been my only experience I'm not sure it it had some effects on me but really with a 25 milligram dose it forced me to relinquish my grip that and I, I it's really changed the way I see my depression I see depression as a kind of form of control like you were saying you know you're clinging on you're you you're trying to dig your nails in so that you still have a tiny little bit of of control and I know where I am but we know that that doesn't really serve us we know that that's a miserable rigid brittle place to to live and psilocybin I think just yeah it, it forces you to relinquish that grip it kind of yeah makes you and it's that comes with a struggle it did for me anyway a huge struggle at the start so the second dose I really fought against that until the team around me really helped me to relinquish that grip and to let go and to trust that was the thing trust myself that I could deal with it trust them that they were looking after me and trust the the drug as well really to uh to do what it needed to do um yeah it's yeah, yeah it's not without its struggle for many people yeah sure um Leonie was your experience like that was that something that you had to give into or was uh you know were you able to just kind of like ease into the into the whole thing how did it work for you so um both Ian and I've done two uh, clinical trials Ian's done two psilocybin trials and I've done a psilocybin for depression and a DMT trial and um and I think I think the, the metaphor they use for the psilocybin trials is about a, a deep sea pearl dive and for me the psilocybin uh, psychedelic experience is is like that you do feel a descent you do feel you're going down towards um, dark clam shells at the bottom of the seabed. You, you, they're spiky, they're covered in grime and slime, but you know that there's a pearl inside and there's about committing to go in and through and finding it. Uh, and knowing that there's an anchor dropped from, from above the, the waters from the clinical team, there's a handrail back up, there is support waiting for you, you are safe. You just need to do this work yourself. Um, uh, the, the DMT trial was very much the the visualization meditation there is about a roller coaster going into a dark mountain and th there is no choice with a DMT experience I mean it's um yeah it blew the, blew the door off the hinges really um so I am um, there was absolutely more resistance for me with the the, the psilocybin trial I think because it was a gentler descent and I felt that control Ian was speaking to and it's like I don't want to let go don't want to let go but the DMT experience is like fell you just let go <laughs> and you're in it and, wow. uh, and, and I think for, for both of them, being in that space of uh, in and through, uh, trusting the process and being open to what arises and really, really almost um, having no option but to feel the feelings you've been suppressing or the issues you've been avoiding and not wanting to address. And then coming up in, in surprising ways. I mean, for me, they came up in quite a somatic way. Um, uh, difficulty breathing at one point, I just I felt like a heaviness in my chest, very heavy. Um, felt like the depression had been externalized as a, a heavy dark coat an ill-fitting coat which had been I had did a lot of sort of um uh, generational trauma work I started realizing what was mine what was my mother's what was my grandmother's what stories had been passed down and layered upon me I started realizing that underneath all of that all these things I'd been learning or I'd inherited all these wounds I'd attained there was a me that was that was wholly unbroken and I was struggling in this ill-fitting coat that really wasn't entirely my own or of my choosing. 
Um, and for me, yeah, I think that the in and three moment was absolutely when I realized this, pulled my eye mask off from the headphones, looked at my therapist and said, gosh, I'm surprisingly unbroken. Then put everything went back on and went back in to keep doing the spelunking and the work and the depths of the water. Because yeah. I, I think especially with psilocybin, they waves. Just when you think you're finished with the medicine, you, you go back in. It is a, a long journey. Yeah. And T1 is 20 minutes. Uh, feels longer, but it is a, a, a more contained period of time, whereas psilocybin, you're in for the afternoon. Wow. I, I kind of love this idea of having to put yourself in a situation where you just have to go 100% all in on yourself, yeah. you know, because that's something we avoid, right? As modern humans, particularly modern humans who are, are suffering or who are struggling or whatever word you want to use. And I think it's very rare that you get the opportunity to go, right, I'm going all in on me. I'm going to trust myself. That really stood out to me in when you said that, because I was kind of thinking like, God, how, from my perspective, how often have I done that? You know, how often have I trusted that I'll be okay with it rather than thinking I can't do this? What do I need to, to help me through? It's, um, it's a really, really fascinating thing. And I suppose um, you mentioned integration before, Leonie. That's where the importance of that comes out, right? Because you have this incredible experience and then, then it's done, right? So you, the, the mirror's been held up or whatever metaphor you want to use, but then you've got the, the awareness, you've got the knowledge, but that's not, that's not the end of the journey, right? That's just sort of you know loading your sat nav or something i suppose exactly that's more like a, an afternoon's experience but then what um, yeah yeah and often with these things are so environmental right and one of my favorite sayings I, I don't know who said it it wasn't me i wish it was but so you can't heal in the same environment that made you sick right so once you kind of like realize what's going on well you've got some big changes to make and they're probably changes that you might have been resisting for a long time you know even if you whether you knew or didn't really know that you needed to make them so this idea I, I kind of I picture people coming away from the experience a bit like Bambi on ice you know just kind of like this fresh new world and like what what do I do with this you know so is that's is that the sort of the integration that you're that you're referring to and I think that the first piece of advice we're given on leaving clinical setting uh, is, um, and I think it's after any psychedelic experience, is don't make any, don't get divorced, don't quit your job, don't get married, don't sell your house, don't do any of these things for the next six weeks, just, just sit and let things settle. It's not the time to make, you know, it's time to just sit with and see what, what are the big changes you need to make, and then do them in a sort of steady and considered way, because I think you might come up with this wow experience and rush headlong into things. But part of the integration is allowing a bit of space for it to settle, um, having the opportunity to talk through the experience with people. And as Ian mentioned, the, the integration program we did with Roz, um, it's, uh, it's just actually launched now. Um, it's called the ASA, ASA integration program. And it's very centered. You mentioned nature. It's, a, it's a centered on the Celtic tree calendar. So there are meditations and workshops that run over a 12-month cycle based on a, a tree of each month, which has really, really deep lessons um, and uh, metaphors that really help people in their thinking and structuring their life changes, I guess. And what's amazing with the tree net metaphor is that it has deep roots and they grow in community and they joined by a mycelial network. So uh, and you spoke of a mirror. It's exactly nature is mirroring back to us what we need. And we need a forest of people joined at the root level through a mycelial network. And so having an integration community where you can witness other people going through the same steps, really challenging themselves, really being brave, really stepping up to the plate and, and witnessing each other, not having the need to fix each other or do anything for each other, but just witness each other on this human journey has been so profoundly 
uh, supportive and inspiring. And, um, and because it's a 12 month cycle, we, we've, uh, Ian and I and the rest of the team continued to do the tree workshops after the program came to an end. And you'd think, you're reminded that growth is not a linear process. You get back to the same tree you did a year ago, the, the willow tree, which symbolizes love and grief, which is the flip side of the same coin. Um, and, and you look at the willow tree and you think, oh, this time last year, I was at that point. And it becomes, it becomes quite a marker. It also reminds you that seasonally, things change, that you know, no dark time will last forever. Winter gives way to spring. So, you know, in a way, when I do feel a low mood coming on, instead of trying to resist it again, like the psychedelic experience, like, oh, no, not that, can't do this again. What, medicine, what medication do I need? It's more about what can I do to resource myself? Where are my tree roots? How, what, what nutrients do I need? What support do I have? How do I hunker down, get through this experience and let the spring come back to me? Yeah. And, um, and then weirdly enough, by acknowledging the low mood, it goes away a lot faster yeah. <laughs> instead of resisting it. Yeah. The resistance yeah. on every, le every level, not good. Yeah. Yeah. Very much. It's something I experienced, um, uh, myself when I was, when I was really poorly, was constantly trying to, to fight it and everything I did yeah. in the name of, in the name of wellness, I did to death, you know, like I couldn't yeah. just start being more physically active or meditating or any of this stuff. I had to like, you know, grab, you know, I couldn't just like do a little bit of meditation. I had to go and like sit on a beach for an hour and grind my teeth. And like, it was just the whole, the whole thing. And then as soon as you go and hang on, I'm going to do less, not more then there's a there's a shift right there's a shift yeah. yeah i think there's there's that's where for me like when i before i heard about the trial and got accepted onto it i was desperately trying these things out you know looking online okay being out in nature is meant to help right i'm going to spend hours and hours and hours in lee valley park which is just down the road from me and walking around there however saying to yourself this has to work why don't I feel better why isn't it changing how I feel that's just you know you're crushing any kind of potential that that experience has to help you but you're so desperate you know that you're yeah you're just really really want to feel differently and it's not working and you're trying your hardest you know as for you know resisting feelings emotions thoughts I, I'm still yet to meet anybody that's been able to risk resist their way out of any emotion or thought pattern or way of feeling you know it's it just doesn't work and I think that's what psilocybin and these treatments can really help you do just reframes how you look at your depression and how you approach yourself really I mean I felt self-compassion for the first time ever during that trial I'd heard of it it was a lovely idea but how the hell do you do it and I actually felt it because I felt connected to every living thing. And that therefore included me as well. But I mean, ongoing after that, it's it stuck with me that my depression went from being a cancer that I wanted to cut out of myself and throw away and turned into being, I just see it as an ongoing relationship with myself now. There is no broken and fixed. It's an ongoing, like any relationship you have with anyone, you put in some good work you try to maintain it as best you can you know and even that knowing it's a process rather than thinking you're stuck in that place forever brings a bit of hope with it you know yeah and it, i suppose it's you know when you're poorly it's hope that's in short supply right yeah that's the that's what we um yeah that's what we need the most yeah no it's a wonderful way of looking at it i kind of like because there's maybe like with the internet and all these things, there's so many like books we can read and, you know, and I, I, I know all these, I can intellectually, I can talk about this stuff till the cows come home, but yeah, talking about the importance of self-compassion and feeling self-compassion. 
two different yeah. things yeah yeah and I don't live in that enlightened sort of guru like state of self-compassion most of the time my internal environment is still quite uh it's difficult it's it's not kind it's not a great place to be a lot of the time but I do know now that if I put some good in I'll probably get some good out but again it's the the memory that self-compassion is possible even can help you when you're at the lowest point yeah yeah i suppose it's kind of like um i don't know it's like you just keep practicing right it's like yeah. flexing a muscle you just got to keep using it to keep it to keep it alive yeah, yeah. and ian was the the with you doing like two trials two similar sort of yeah. trials was it a case of like after the first one you were like i see the potential in this and i want to have another go or was it like you know what what was the thought process between jumping in again yeah so i think on a on an overall um in an overall sense you know we've gone from psychedelics will drive you mad now to the narrative being psychedelics will drive will make you sane and fix you one dose and you're fixed forever and that's that's not true either you know i was lucky enough and this is not guaranteed i had what they call an afterglow after the first trial where i had three months of feeling depression and anxiety free everything was lighter and brighter everything just visually looked like it was more alive and i felt that within me as well i felt more alive I could have a conversation with somebody without walking away after it and overanalyzing it and tearing it to shreds going, Oh, you shouldn't have said that. Oh, what, you know, what, what if, you know, did that come across wrong? Well, maybe they thought this, you know, all of that anxiety that then feeds the depression and feeling bad about yourself was just gone really. And it wasn't like I was in the happiest, it wasn't like I was in bliss in this state of pure happiness. It was, really what I'd learned during the treatment that was approach every emotion in the same way, approach every emotion with compassion, with openness, you know, and just let it come to you, process it. And it was really, you know, like crying is as valid a human emotional expression as laughter. That was the way, that's how I lived. So my emotional range was still there. I just sat with it rather than resisting it. Um, but three, during the three to six month period after it gradually faded away, life circumstances derailed me a bit. And then I can track the emails I sent to the Imperial team who were lovely, responsive and supportive. But all I wanted after three to six months was another chance to take psilocybin to kind of reconnect to that, that space. And obviously it's a clinical trial. They can't just go, OK, well, we'll start phase two for you or we'll, we'll count you twice as a participant for phase one. Just doesn't work that way. So I had to wait another four years before I was able to take part in another clinical trial. And that was tough, it was really hard. There was some very dark and difficult times. Taking part in the second trial, it didn't have the same effect as the first. I had no afterglow. I felt my depression and anxiety return while I was still in the room with the team as the psilocybin was wearing off. And I, I can't convey how disappointing that was. You know, I was gutted, really. But the team were amazing. And that's, again, where the very early integration work begins. So going back to see the team the day after, one of the teams said to me, and I don't want this to be like making excuses for a treatment that hasn't worked, but he knew that I was still in that sort of neuroplastic state and flexible state, you know. 
And he said to me, well, maybe you didn't get what you wanted, but maybe you got what you needed. He said you didn't have to do any work to attain that state last time. And he said, well, you've been given a reminder of the things you need to do, as you were saying earlier about your circumstances in life. If you go back to the same circumstances, you will get the same results eventually. You can go on your psilocybin holiday, come back. If everything remains the same, then the same problems will probably return. So after that, it, it really helped me to reframe it. So I started doing, doing the work. I started seeing a different kind of counsellor, for instance, that was more, I've tried to solve the problems of the mind with the mind, the problems of thinking with more thinking, that just wasn't working for me. So started working with a counsellor that was more body-based. Uh, there's a book called The Body Keeps the Score, which I'd highly recommend if you haven't read it. Um, it's about how we store trauma in our body etc and it was more in line with that different techniques that are more physical rather than just talking and also after that trial I have to say I've been off antidepressants ever since so that was 2019 so it's nearly nearly three years it will be three years in October so that's the thing it's like I could easily have said or without the integration work afterwards oh that was a failure I'm not doing this again it just doesn't work but um there was still, it was still a catalyst for change. Yeah, sure. I suppose it's like, it must be such a, such a unusual experience, such a, you know, because there's only a certain amount of people who have um, in this environment, in this clinical environment as well. So is that kind of what, what you guys are doing with, one of the things you're doing with Saipan is kind of like bringing people together who have had these experiences and taught you know from what you've learned and the need for integration and coming together and is that kind of like the building blocks of what you guys are doing now Leon? So in, increasingly that's that's where our emphasis is being redirected I think out of out of demand and out of need I think um I think clinical trial organizations are noticing that their responsibility ends at the end of the trial but uh increasingly we're noticing that they are they do have some concern about where do the participants go afterwards and we know from having been on uh, various speaking platforms that people are finding us and saying we need to connect so we are we are absolutely hearing that call and wanting to find a way in a peer support social kind of level to, to bring people together so that they have somewhere to, to land post a, a psychedelic trial experience to have the conversations because it is about connection to ourselves and each other and our communities so creating these these communities of shared experience and, 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 and purpose, because I think in connecting people, people start making those changes to their lives, going on nature walks and just you know connecting people to enable those kinds of things to happen. But I think the second branch of our work, uh, aside from the sort of connecting participants, once we've connected them, is to, to hear their stories and to hear the themes that are coming up. Because while we all have wildly differing experiences, I think there's certainly similar themes and uh, experiences of the clinical trial process. And, and Ian and I are working with uh, participants in our network to put them in contact with uh, clinical trial organizers to in a focus group kind of setting to actually feedback on what worked, what didn't work. Because there, there certainly is still room for improvement. Both Ian and I have a list of things that we would have liked slightly tweak that might've helped the experience. And actually working with organizations now so that we can really ensure that these clinical trials really hold the participant at every sort of decision making, you know, at the heart of every decision that's made. And that when these become treatments, that they, they rolled out in the most ethical and sustainable way. Um, so that participants and, and patients get the most value from these treatments. 
Yeah, sure. I suppose it's like, it's all just so new, isn't it? And although the medicine itself is really old, like we talked about before, um, the idea of kind of using it in in the modern world in this very particular way is really, really new. And of course, anytime you're looking at um, healing people, then there's like, there's a lot of people saying, well, how can we make a lot of money out of healing people, right? And I suppose then it, it really helps to have these conversations and to have organizations and just kind of like just keeping an eye right on, on how this is growing and how this is moving forward. Is that right, Ian? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we, we really hope that we can work with these organizations and help to, to guide them in the right direction. You know, I think to sum up our work, it would be psychedelic safeguarding. So ensuring that even from the advertising of a trial in the very first instance, that that is done responsibly because you have people like us who are desperately searching online, looking for some way of easing our suffering, you know, and they come across a trial. And if if that, even that advert is, you know, makes it sound really easy to get onto the trial or doesn't say how difficult it is to get through screening. And we're noticing that it's increasingly that the, the screening criteria are a lot stronger as, as time is, is going by. So there will be more people screened out. So not to be too kind of negative when the word about these trials is put out there, but just to, if you have somebody that's in a very desperate, depressed state, looking for that, that glimmer of hope to kind of manage those expectations from the very first moment. And then, yeah, that carries on through the, the whole of the trial process with the screening itself. That can be quite labour intensive, the amount of questionnaires you have to answer and fill in and some people may feel you know that feeling of being completely overwhelmed that you get when you are in that in that desperate place again it's something that people need support with um so it's not just about ensuring that people are safe when they're given these these medicines it that is that is part of it and it's a large part of it and the team need to be amazingly supportive well trained and have to have developed that bond of trust with the participant. That is so important. But yeah, that carries through to afterwards as well. So people talk about set and setting. So that's your mindset when you go in to, to take one of these drugs and the, the setting, so where you actually are. But, you know, that isn't just key during the, the dose, the treatment itself. It's key before, during and after. You know, if you think you've got somebody in a highly neurologically flexible state coming out after they've had this treatment. So if you, it really matters where they go straight afterwards. It really matters, in fact, I would say, what they do in the, the week or two weeks or three weeks after the treatment, because you're in that highly kind of open and suggestible state. Well, the suggestible part, sorry, is probably just during the dose, but you're in that very open state. And it really matters you know, which seeds you plant during that phase, because then that is what's going to grow in the coming weeks and months. So it's really just trying to guide these organisations to ensure that, yes, a lot of money's flooding in, the mental health market is worth billions, but it's like if you're not considering the people at the very core of what you're doing, I think with psychedelics, it's so different to SSRIs. I think if organizations don't consider that they will fail if you don't get the nuances right if you don't pay attention to that detail you will probably fail 
Yeah, I mean, there's you know, there's just so much to unpack, isn't there? If someone's yeah. like mentally poorly, right? There's just so much, and it, it. I suppose we don't really know when that unpacking starts how that's going to unfold. Yeah, and if if trials are thinking of people as numbers, and like you say, even if there is a lot of care, you know, during the process, essentially you are still a patient on a trial, and to some extent, you are a number. Like you, you might be a cared for number and a loved number, but you're still a number because the idea is to test this stuff, right? So, yeah, really, really fascinating. And something that jumped out to me then when you um, well, you were both speaking actually is is being able to talk about some of the kind of negative parts of this conversation. And it's something I feel myself that I missed when I spoke to Roz, because I kind of got like so carried away with like, like learning about this stuff. And it got to the end and I thought that wasn't a very like impartial conversation. And the more I thought about that is that I see a lot, depending on who you follow on social media, there's a lot of people saying, oh yeah, no, I went to Ibiza and I licked a frog and mm. I danced all night. And then when I came home, everything was amazing. You know, that that narrative is as much as there's that stigma about, you know, bad experiences and bad trips. There is that narrative that all you got to do is just do one thing and suddenly life's amazing. And I, I do think I kind of thought, right, when I speak to Ian and Leone, I want to, I want to talk about some of the, the harder stuff and the darker stuff, because that's the real stuff, right? That's the stuff that most people are going to probably come up against in some form in their own, own version of. Um, and you mentioned, Leonie, before, like some of the tweaks you made, uh, you would like to have seen made to the thing. Does that kind of, would that fall under that umbrella as well as, you know, preparation for some of the, the harder things? Exactly. And the integration thereof, as Ian said, the space you return to, uh, the kind of support you have available. I mean, I think while there's a lot of money to be made in, in the sector, I think a lot of it will be made potentially by cutting corners. And you cut corners in the therapeutic model that sort of surrounds this. So I think what you're seeing, I went to Ibiza, licked a frog. I went to Peru and I ingested a vine. Um, I think it's about, there's a narrative about replacing one ingestible substance with another ingestible substance. And that's what we're going for. And actually, we need an absolute rethink right down to basics. In fact, this is, the substance is almost immaterial. It's a catalyst. It's, a, it's an afternoon. It's a point in time will make these treatments work and this is a lot of the sort of input we're giving to organizations is the integration support that follows it the kind of setting setting you return home to the kind of support and networks and community of care that you have around you and and so i think where we are uh, as a society really is trying to create a cultural container that can contain these experiences because more and more people are seeking us um, because they can be found by other means people are taking matters into their own hands we, because of the media narrative out there. And so we'll have a lot of people potentially re-traumatizing themselves. So we need to ensure that they're therapists that can hold these spaces, hold these containers, and that they're people that can understand what experience you've gone through. Um, and that we need to hold the organizations that will be delivering these treatments accountable to ensure it's a full package of care and support, because it, it, it's just, uh, it wouldn't be right to just give uh, a psychedelic and, and let somebody do the integration on their own. Without yeah, the sure human contact and support to really embed the experience. Yeah. And I suppose anything that's really like can be useful for helping people when they're going through something is, you know, whether it's like therapy or whether it is um, medication or, you know, anything, it doesn't really matter. Like you say, that's just a catalyst, right? And it's what happens, what happens afterwards. It's not, um, you know, your therapy session isn't where necessarily where the magic happens, right? It's the kind of, it's, it's the later on where all the pieces fall back down that maybe you get a bit of different insight and, um, 
yeah yeah i like, love the idea of kind of guiding through and maybe it's something we need to be better at with not even like with the with new stuff you know with like psychedelics or whatever but just with like therapy and medication and you know putting people on medication without giving them a therapist and things like that that's um it's, it's all a bit of a mess in that respect isn't it i think because at that point you're just containing the symptom right you're not actually getting to the roots of the depression you you're seeing it's like a whack-a-mole to me i, I often feel like it's whack-a-mole it's popped up you whack it down right mm. frankly let's stop trying to whack them all and let's go underground and let's do the deep work let's find the source of the the dis-ease the discomfort the, the source of unhappiness and and work with that with a therapist i'm, I'm also heartened by the move in the sort of uh, mental health industry or sector uh, that a lot of the treatments are looking to be as Ian mentioned more somatic now a lot more body-based practices uh, some of the social prescribing is about going for walks is about doing a drumming class is about doing ecstatic dance and moving your body it is about dropping from the head space into the body and the heart space and I think that that's a key part of people's healing um, journeys now and I think having that narrative and supporting them and those options being put out is really important yeah yeah i was looking at kind of what we need as as humans on a basic level right and it is those things are there's a hundred different ways to bring about connection and um connecting with other people in this idea of community and yet, yet we do none of them <laughs> you know or connect via our phones or or whatever you know and um, that's that's the stuff that's missing isn't it that's a big part in why people start to get sick some people anyway start to get sick in the um in the first place yeah yeah, we're very isolated and atomized. The pandemic has just increased that, you know, uh, we're, we're a lot more, you know, we don't really have those communities. We don't have that connection in our everyday lives. And that's the thing. I mean, we're talking about, we're trying to do our small part by having, forming a community of people similar to ourselves who've taken part in, you know, in clinical psychedelic trials. But, you know, on a broader uh, level we we just people don't generally don't have a community anymore and um that's that is potentially arguably one of the reasons why we have a mental health pandemic for want of a better term i think that has a lot to do with it because yeah. we are so fragmented detached we yeah. do need that connection and community it's all that i mean you know the the word nature has come up so many times today already and it's that yeah. seems like the further we we drift away from our original design so to speak you know so I work in the um like in the rehab space you know and so much around physical pain is come because just we don't use our bodies like they're designed for we use them in this modern world and and the the parallels with the mind are exactly the same right we've got a a brain that doesn't even recognize this in environment my favorite analogy I always say to people is like a car right so your brain's only supposed to move as fast as you can run and yet we pop it in a car and ping it down a motorway at 70 miles an hour and wonder why we're all stressed and, uh, <laughs> you know, and, and you're like panicking about stuff. But, uh, yeah, Tom, so. It's funny you should bring that up because um, Ian and I mentioned the nature retreat we went on. And one of the exercises, we were sitting in nature, beautiful. And uh, the, the facilitator pointed out that this was the frame change, the pace at which we we're meant to be observing our, our world. And it was so much slower than your day-to-day, -day, the constant pinging on your computer screens, the cars zipping down the road. The, we, we're not meant to live at that pace of change. And I'm not saying let's all go live in a cave right now, but I am saying, gosh, we do desperately need to carve out the time where we just operate at, and we just can be at that slower level and our minds can sort of reset and calm down. Because that constant hypervigilance state of always on, on, on and not being and slowing is detrimental. For, for all of us not designed that way yeah definitely and it just drains that energy doesn't it that sort of 
I call it, I, I don't really know what type of energy it is. I call it like an emotional energy. It's not the energy you need to go for a run. It's a, it's the different type of energy, right? And it's when that tank gets empty that that's when, um, when problems really arise. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Our guys, I've enjoyed it immensely chatting to the two of you today. I've tried really, I've got quite a strong interest in this myself and I, 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 it's really hard to kind of um, not just turn it into a, a really a Q&A just for me. <laughs> I'm trying to bear in mind that there are people uh, people listening that are going through different things and I'll have different ideas about this stuff. But I've, um, I've really, really enjoyed it. It's been an absolute pleasure. Uh, what have you guys got coming up with Saipan? Is where, um, where are you at with it? What's happening next? What's going on? Um, we're continuing to work with as many of these organisations as we can. So if any are listening to this, if they want to reach out to us and work with us, we'd definitely welcome that. We're building the network of participants. So again, that involves working with organisations to get them to refer their participants onto us afterwards. Um, because the more you know voices that we can pull, the more people feeding in, the bigger the community. So that works in its own right to, you know, Give that give people that space to actually discuss their uh, experiences, but it also helps us have a wealth of experience and knowledge to feed back in to these trials to improve them for the next, you know, group of participants, etc. But yeah, we're doing we're we're appearing. Well, Leonie was recently in the desert in Portugal, speaking at uh, the Boom Festival with uh, with Roz. On stage in 42, 42 degree heat. Wow. Um, we've got some events coming up as well. Um, Leone's at Medicine Festival. Uh, we'll be at ICPR in um, the Netherlands next month as well. So we're really trying to, we still need to keep putting the word out there. Um, likewise, I should say, by the way, if any participants are listening to this, then please do join us. There's a, there's a form on the website or ping us an email if you want to join. Uh, the network and people can get whatever they want out of it really if they just want to have that community they can have that if they want to do the work we're doing with these organizations and help with on working groups etc they can be involved in that as well but yeah i was just going to say we're still trying to put the word out there raise awareness still trying to you know normalize and destigmatize the conversation around these treatments um while also trying to find the time to do the the really deep meaningful work uh, with these organizations as well so yeah there's a lot sure. um, leonie have i missed anything <laughs> not at all uh, it's just our thanks to you tom for for helping yeah. us both ah, no worries yeah. at all it's been a opportunities for people to get, get involved and engage with us thank you so much oh no worries no it's my absolute pleasure something just popped into my head there and i thought i must ask these guys about this but it was when you said the word normalize then right and one thing that i noticed when we were like putting this together and there's lots of emails pinging back and forth and all the rest of it i had out of offices at some point from both of you that mentioned that you were taking time to make space for your mental health yeah. and i thought that was wonderful you know and so often on this um uh, a part of this podcast comes up about like the mental health awareness conversation you know and I can't I always think that we kind of we try and make noise maybe not in the wrong spaces I don't think there is a wrong space but we try and maybe focus on the bigger picture on you know making it something that looks pretty for Instagram and maybe the way to normalize this conversation is just to have it not separately to other conversations right so the idea of like on and out of office rather than saying I'm holiday just saying yeah I'm just having a break to um to you know rest up for my mental health I thought that was 
wonderful. It was really, uh, really cool. Is that something you guys have always done or is that? Um... It's certainly a new thing for me personally. And um, usually it's either holidays when it was in the work context or burnout, neither of which are fantastic. <laughs> so being able to actually notice things and say, so I need to just recalibrate has been amazing. And the response to it has been um, gosh, it's probably one of our most effective tools. I think, you know, we, the organizations we work with are coming back with such positive feedback and taking it back into their own teams. And, and we've pushed back on people, journalists that have contacted us on a Sunday afternoon, uh, 3 p.m. for a 6 p.m. Sunday evening deadline. And we're like, you know, we actually can't do that right now. We'd love to, but for these reasons, we can't um, because we prior commitments, we were with family. It's just that level of pressure. It just doesn't work in this instance. And people really welcoming that and wanting to work with us in a sort of more sane way. So I think we're we're genuinely trying to walk the walk and be the change we want to see yeah. in the in a way of yeah. showing up and working in a more sustainable and healthy manner. Yeah, we hope that ripples outward and it seems to, you know, we can only have so much effect. We can't change the world between the two of us. But if we can operate as an organisation and anyone that does work with us also, you know, it's like if you put genuinely put mental health first because we do live in this world of more 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 faster 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 however productive you are your level of productivity is your level of worth as a human being and that isn't right because I've I've suffered from burnout and Leonie's had her own experiences as well you know you can only keep you know running on fumes for so long before you can't actually do any work at all you know so we need to do that we need to do that on a broader level to kind of set out our stall, be boundaried and say, this is the way we work, you know? So if you can work around that, then great, because, you know, we need to put our mental health first, but on a personal level, we have to do this because yes, we can do great work. Yes, there's so much to be done in this area, but if we don't look after ourselves, we won't be able to do any of it. We'll have to stop. So there's no choice really, yeah. but, but to approach things in this way yeah That's definitely now yeah and it's it, is really, it is hard yeah it yeah. is hard because especially when like you know this the whole movement around psychedelics as a treatment is like really taking off right so it feels like there's momentum there and saipan's taking off and all these things are happening and it does feel that if you turn your emails off for a day you think what if tomorrow is the day when the email drops in that changes everything what if my funding is about to arrive and i'm not going to be there to catch it you know like these are the things that but in reality you know if i have a week off instagram when i go back and check my dms there's nothing (laughs) it's like nothing's happened in the the week and i was completely fine to have a have a week off but yeah it was just something that really um it's definitely something i'm going to be doing doing forward i thought it was a lovely uh, a lovely touch you know and you know you mentioned like trying to you know trying to change the world it's that sphere of influence right and your sphere of influence might be one person it might be like 300 million people or whatever but that's you you work with what you've got and that's how those ripples that's yeah. how they um that's how they keep going out but like yeah. our work here is done tom we expect yeah. to see it. Yeah. yeah yeah that's yeah. it yeah so i'll yeah. be getting little little tester i'm off next week if we get little tester emails just to make sure i've done it but, uh, <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> oh, <that's> super yeah <laughs> guys thank you so much for your time today i really really appreciate it i've already tried to sign off once and you dragged me back <laughs> in and I, um, I could keep going easily but yeah thank you so much i'm really really it was great to meet you both great to meet you too tom thanks for having us oh cheers thank you
Thank you for listening from the Proper Mental Podcast. Please like and subscribe. Plus five stars.